Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Joe and I, Joe, my wife and I, have the pleasure of holding the title of favourite uncle and auntie to uh, 13 nieces and nephews. And my sister Angie has seven kids, um, lives down at Panola near Mount Gambia. And one time, a little while ago, we got to look after four of her kids while Ivan and Angie went to a party nearby. Now, the older three of the four were more than happy to watch endless amounts of Netflix on our TV, a little treat for them that they didn't get very often. But Monique, being the younger of the four and having a very low attention span and being the sort of character of a girl who just never shuts up, she um, comes up to Joe and I really politely saying how bored she was. She said, what can I do? What can I do? And we didn't have a collection of toys for her, so I was, we didn't have much for her to do. So I said, oh, Nick, would you like to have a bath? So she's like, yeah, 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 I'll have a bath, a bath, yeah, sure. So Joe took Neek and ran her a bath and um, went into the bathroom and was looking through the cupboards, looking for some bubble bath or something for her to play with. And she came across some old bath bombs. And score of scores, she came across a little pink unicorn bath bomb. It was perfect. And I presume we all know what a bath bomb is. It's an expensive little soap thing that you put in the bath and it aesthetically pleasing to the eye spreads out through the water in an array of colours. So Joe takes this bath bomb to beat Niki. I don't know why Joe had a pink unicorn bath bomb, but <laughs> she takes it to Niki and she's like, Niki, you want the unicorn? And Niki's like, oh, yes, yeah, give me the unicorn, of course. So Joe puts the unicorn in the bath and Niki just watches the water slowly turn pink and just stands there staring at the water. And then she looks up at Joe and goes, where's the unicorn? <laughs> and Joe realized then Niki doesn't know what a bath bomb is. Niki reaches into the bath, looking around for the unicorn, and she comes up with this pink, misshapen thing with, that's had, looks like it's got, had acid poured on it. And her lip pokes out, and a little tear forms in the corner of her eye, and she's devastated and traumatized. <laughs> Why was Monique so upset? She was so upset because there was a difference between what she expected and what happened in reality. She expected a toy to play with, something that she could play with in the bath, but what she got was a bomb in her face, a bath bomb, and her emotions showed that her expectations weren't met. Isn't that why we break down when our reality doesn't line up with our expectations? What we expected in our life doesn't line up with reality. We expected a fun time, a comfortable time, a unicorn toy. But what we got was a bomb in our face, and we've been met with heartache and anguish and regret. How can we keep going when our lives didn't go as we expected? How can we keep going when what happened in reality didn't line up with our expectations? Tonight we're finishing a series on Return to Sender, and we've been each week taking a lie from the enemy, wrapping it up and sending it back to him, replacing it with a truth from the, from the Lord. 
And tonight's lie, we're focusing on if my plans fail, I must be a failure. If my plans fail, I must be a failure. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this story of a man called Elijah in 1 Kings 19 and how things didn't go as expected for him. So if you haven't already, look that up in your Bibles, 1 Kings 19. And I pray that the more we look at this story tonight, we'll see just how precious God is with Elijah and is so gracious and patient with him despite his plans falling apart and his expectations not being met. We'll see how God is so gracious and patient with us when our expectations aren't met, when our plans fail, when we feel like a failure. God is so good to us. So let's look at the passage. First of all, we see that we so easily despair when our lives don't go as we expected. Elijah's life didn't go as, we, as he expected. How do we know that? Well, we need to take a brief look at chapter 18. What happened there? What's the context to this story? So Israel, which is the northern kingdom, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, Israel is ruled by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And they've given their hearts over to Baal worship, a sick, sick religion that encourages child worship and all other sorts of stuff. And they've led astray the whole nation of Israel into this awful lifestyle. And they worship this false god because they believe that he supplies um, the dew and the rain and fertility for them, something that is so important to them. So God proves through Elijah who is the God of the rain, the God of the seasons, and the God of everything by calling a drought on Israel. And Elijah goes into hiding after calling this drought, reappears three years later to a drought-stricken nation, and challenges Ahab to a face-off of the gods. Let's meet on Mount Carmel, he says. So it's 450 Baal prophets versus one Elijah on Mount Carmel. Elijah says, let's make two altars. One for your God, one for mine. You pray to your God, I'll pray to mine. Whosoever God brings fire down on the altar, that's the God we should worship. Everyone agrees. Of course, the Baal prophets fail miserably, embarrassing themselves. Elijah makes fun of them and mocks them. Then Elijah prays to the one true God, and boom, down comes the, the fire, engulfing the sacrifice, the water around it, and the altar itself. Elijah then puts these Baal prophets to death, as it says here in verse 1. He then miraculously calls the drought off, runs back to Jezreel at the end of chapter 18. After this awesome victory on Mount Carmel, we can understand why Elijah expected revival, but instead he got indifference. Look down at verse 1 there. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Elijah thought that after this incredible victory, he'd race back to Jezreel, and there he'd find Ahab and Jezebel on their knees, repenting of their wickedness, and Israel would be back on track again. And if Ahab and Jezebel didn't do that, then the people, after seeing this amazing victory, would overthrow Ahab and Jezebel. Regardless of how it happened, Elijah expected revival and that his people would experience redemption. It didn't happen. Nothing happened. He was met with indifference. Elijah expected revival, but he got indifference. Elijah expected 
acceptance. But instead, he got death threats. Look down in verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as one of the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. All of Israel was struggling because of the drought that he had called upon them. And he would, he would not have been a popular guy at all. But you'd think that after calling the drought off, and the rain had returned to Israel, and the famine would lift, that Elijah would regain some sort of popularity and acceptance. All he gained were death threats from a vengeful queen. Elijah expected acceptance, but instead he got death threats. Can you relate to Elijah here? Have you had some things in your life, even recently, not go according to plan? Have you had your expectations not met? You didn't get the marks you expected at school. You haven't scored that job that you're after and it's wrecking your life plan. You've experienced a relationship breakdown with someone you never expected to have one with. You put in the hard yards and things were going good, but instead of being met with revival, you've been met with indifference. Instead of being met with acceptance, you've been met with rejection. How do we so often react to plans and expectations falling apart. We see here that Elijah became fearful, isolated, and ultimately full of despair. Look down at verses 3 and 4. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. First, Elijah becomes afraid. Well, you might say, so he should have. It's a bit unfair of us to judge someone who's got a direct death threat. But think about this previous chapter, just chapter 18, just a few hours before, he was facing off against 450 Baal prophets. He was so courageous and so bold, and he was mocking them. What happened between chapter 18 and chapter 19? I think a key word there is then. Then he was afraid, because in chapter 18, God was the one under attack and under scrutiny, but now it's Elijah who's under attack and under scrutiny. And he takes it very personally. Then, because of his fear, Elijah runs for his life. He's running away from the trouble. Once again, it doesn't marry up well with chapter 18. On Mount Carmel, he's definitely not a guy that avoids conflict. He loves conflict. So why is he running away from conflict and trouble here? So Elijah becomes fearful. Secondly, he becomes isolated. Notice at the end of verse 3, it says, he left his servant there. And verse 4, he himself went a day's journey. Elijah is looking to get everyone out of his life because he feels so alone. So he might as well make himself alone in a literal sense. He leaves his support group behind. So fear leads to isolation, leads ultimately to despair. Now, I have to stop here and say, if you resonate with the end of verse 4, asking God to take away your life and you'd rather die than live, 
Don't do what Elijah does. Don't go in it alone. Seek help from someone. Seek help from someone here. Speak to someone. Speak to your doctor. Come to the counseling center here. How Elijah goes about it here is not the way to do it. And I encourage you, please, talk to someone. You don't have to go it alone. Because Elijah here is in the ultimate posture of despair, he's giving up. He's ready to give up on his ministry. Why do I say that? It says that he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. Beersheba is in Judah. He's leaving Israel. What he's saying is, I'm done with Israel. I'm done with my calling. I'm done with my ministry. I'm done with these people. He's ready to give up on his ministry. He's ready to give up on life altogether at the end of verse 4, asking God to take his life away. He sees himself as a failure and compares himself to others, hence why he says, I am no better than my father's. He compares himself to his fathers. Look at the fruit of their ministry. I have no fruit in my ministry. I'm a failure. He compares himself to others. I think whether we admit it or not, we are all like Elijah. When things haven't gone according to plan and our expectation didn't line up with reality, we have become fearful. We start to think, what will people think of me? Why don't they like me? We start scrambling for acceptance where we feel we deserve it. We run away from conflict. We run away from trouble because it's all too much to handle. We begin to isolate ourselves. We leave our support group behind and we keep them out of the loop of how we're really going, how we're really feeling. Or we don't have a support group and we're going to keep it that way. Someone asks you, where were you the other night? I missed you and you... Yeah, you know, I'm just being so busy and yeah, and you and I both know that you'd rather stay at home and be alone than be in a room full of people and feel just as alone. Well-intentioned friends who are worried about you ask you, how are you? And you isolate yourself by saying, I'm fine, I'm good. When things don't go as we expect, we despair. We want to give up on our ministry, on our calling. We start to compare ourselves to others. Their ministry looks like it's flourishing. What am I doing wrong? Their kids seem so well behaved, but my kids aren't. Is it my parenting or my kids, or is it their parenting and their good kids? Like, we start to compare. Why haven't I got a partner yet? Why haven't I got engaged and married like all of my friends? We start to believe the lie. If my plans fail, I must be some sort of failure. Like, what's the point? I might as well give up. We so easily despair when our lives don't go as we expected. When our lives don't go as we expected, we become fearful, we become isolated, and we become ultimately full of despair. But praise God, there is hope here for Elijah, and there is hope for you and me too. Because God meets us at our lowest point of despair and feelings of failure. And next we see that God meets our needs and reveals his glory. This passage is so precious and we learn so much about the character of God. First we see that God graciously meets all of Elijah's needs. How does he do that? Look down at verses 5 to 8. 
And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a head of head of cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. See how God meets Elijah's physical need. First, God just lets him sleep. Elijah goes and sleeps under the broom tree and Elijah just sleeps and God lets him. Isn't that a God you want to worship, a God that lets you sleep? There's a lesson here. Sometimes when things go wrong, things don't go according to plan, what we need is a sleep in. We need to sleep it off. And we may feel guilty about that, but God knows our needs and he knows that sometimes we just need to sleep. We need to rest. God then cooks Elijah a nice hot meal. Once again, isn't that a God you want to worship? A God that cooks you a nice hot meal? Amen. Pastor Jeff would agree. <laughs> Sometimes what we need is a nice hot meal and a cool, refreshing drink. What's the picture here? What's, what's the application? What can we learn? Maybe what you need to do is when things fall apart, you need to cancel your plans. Cancel the plans that you're holding on to so tightly because all your other plans have failed. And you need to take a weekend away, go to the Barossa or go to the Flurio, have some nice meals, have a sleep in, go for a walk on the beach and clear your mind with someone that you love. Clear your mind with the Lord. Emotionally, God meets Elijah's needs. Look at verses 9 and 10. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Something that I'm learning as a leader and being led by others is the best emotional support I can get and the best counsel support is not necessarily words of counsel being spoken to me. The best emotional support that I can receive is when someone knows the right question to ask and they just listen. Because if you think about it, why would Elijah ask this question? Like, Elijah's not walking into the cave and go, as I live and breathe, Elijah the Tishbite, what are you doing here? He knows what Elijah's there. So why would a sovereign God ask this question? He asked Elijah this because he wants Elijah to know why he's there, to get to Elijah's heart. Then he listens to Elijah's rant, and Elijah tells him what's up. I've worked so hard for you, God, and for what? For nothing. It's all been for nothing. And those people you call your chosen people, they're idiots. I'm all alone, and I might as well die. I think often when things have gone wrong for us, our expectations weren't met, all we need is a good sesh with God. We need to call out to him and have a solid, honest rant about how we feel. God in his grace desires to listen to us. Notice here that God is never angry at Elijah. He's not angry to hear yeah. your honesty either. 
He already knows what's on your heart, but he wants to hear you call out from your heart for your own sake, not for his. So God meets Elijah's physical need, emotional need. He also meets Elijah's needs mentally. Look at verses 15 to 18. And what we see in verses 15 to 17 is lots of details that God's got a step-by-step plan for Elijah to do next. And they are important. What God is doing here is he's revealing to Elijah the plan he does have for Israel. He's resting Elijah's mental strain and saying, I'm not done with Israel. You can rest easy. There is a plan for the nation, but it wasn't what you thought it was. And he puts Elijah's mind and heart at ease by telling him in verse 18, there's still 7,000 more people around who haven't bowed their knee to Baal and kissed his feet. God didn't have to do this. He instead, in his grace, revealed his plan to Elijah and mentally answered his questions. Sometimes what you need is a new plan that's not yours. That takes humility, I know, but in order to have your mental strain rested, you need to trust God and others to come up with a better idea than you. Shock horror, they might have a better idea than you. And I feel like as I grow older and um, being around men, men need to hear this especially. It's hard to fathom that someone has a better idea and a better plan than you. Teenagers and kids, sometimes your parents have a better plan than you. Husbands, your wives will have a better plan than you so often. Wives, you're all good. So God meets all of Elijah's needs. God also reveals his glory to Elijah. Let's focus now on verses 8 to 13, those verses that uh, Venith read out for us before. Even though all of Elijah's needs have been met, we still find him hiding out in a cave. When our expectations aren't met, we can go away for the weekend. We can have a nice meal and a cool drink. We can rest up. We can have some amazing counsel. But we're still in a state of despair. We're still hiding out in a cave. You see, the reason we find ourselves still hiding out into the cave is because our plans have become an idol to us. What we had in mind for the future was the only future we could accept. Now, I want you to to hear me out here because um, the feedback that I got is that um, I could lose some people here. So if we just concentrate a little bit more, that would be awesome because I'm going to share a few different parts of Scripture. So bear with me, please. It would appear from this passage and for the rest of Elijah's life that his hope for revival never really came. There was a plan for the immediate future of Israel, as God points out in those verses at the end. But the redemption that Elijah was after for Israel never really came. Israel would continue in its sin and wickedness, and it would be taken into captivity to Assyria, and the northern kingdom of Israel would essentially be lost to history. So knowing that, how can Elijah and us Let go of our plans and expectations into God's hands. Now, I want you to stick with me here. 
Mount Horeb, Mount Horeb in verse 8, is known by another name, Mount Sinai. Now, who was on Mount Sinai? Moses. What happened to Moses on Mount Sinai? God revealed his glory to Moses by hiding him in a cleft or cave of the mountain and revealed his glory to him by passing by him. When Jesus was walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee in the Gospels, something we miss is that while the disciples were freaking out in the midst of the storm, it says in Mark, there was one phrase that says, Jesus meant to pass by them, meaning he was intending to reveal his glory to them. He was showing them his glory in the midst of the storm. It says here in verse 11 of 1 Kings, and behold, the Lord passed by. So are you with me? We have Moses, Jesus, and Elijah, all revelations of glory by the act of passing by. These three men were all on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was transfigured in front of the disciples and they saw the glory of the Son of God in all of his glory, and in front of the disciples, Jesus talked with Moses and Elijah. Elijah was then able to see God in all of his glory, and he saw God's redemption plan in Jesus. He saw God's redemption plan not just for Israel, but for all of humanity in Jesus. The gospel was revealed to Elijah. You see, Elijah was expecting redemption and a revival plan of Israel for God to come in the fire and the earthquake and the hurricane, but instead, God's redemption plan was through a still, small voice. So whose plan was better, Elijah's or God's? Whose plan is better, yours or God's? We seem to think that our plans and our expectations are the bee's knees and we elevate them to places of idols. And we get so upset when they don't go right. But God is so patient with us to reveal his gracious gospel plan. Can you see the gospel in this passage? I think if we were God, it would have all ended under the broom tree. We would have picked Elijah up by the ear and got him to go back to work. Get back to it. You were a mighty prophet of God. Look at what you did just a few hours ago on Mount Carmel. Look at what I did through, through you. Now get back to it. But God doesn't reveal himself through the hurricane or an earthquake or a fire. He instead reveals himself as a gentle whisper and a still, small voice in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the earthquake. In the midst of everything falling apart, God revealed himself that way. And that's the gospel. That's the upside-down kingdom that we're in, not getting what we deserve. The gospel isn't God revealing himself as a big, scary, full-of-judgment God, the God of fire, earthquake, and hurricane, which he can and he will. The gospel is him instead revealing himself as a small, still small voice, a kind, gentle, gracious whisper. Instead of a mighty, scary king, he comes as a helpless babe. That's the gospel. And the gospel proves that his plan is better and greater. 
And this message is so personal to me on so many levels, you have no idea. And that was before this week. This week did not go according to plan for me at all. Um, because of the heat, I thought that my plan was I'd work a little bit in the morning, come home, have a little nap, work on my sermon each day because of the heat. Wednesday morning, 3 a.m., started throwing up. And every hour on the dot was just throwing up over and over. And it was, it's, we can laugh about it now, but it was not funny at the time how scary it was. I got so sick and so dehydrated, my hands cramped up like this. And Joe was asleep, I was sleeping on the couch, and I barged into our room, and Joe's just like, what's wrong? And I'm like, ah, ah. And she hands me the bucket to throw up, and I'm trying to hold it, like, and it was so scary. And I spent all morning sick, and just as I come good, I woke up to Joe throwing up, and I had to care for her. And we ended up in the hospital on uh, Wednesday night um, on the drip to make sure Joe was hydrated because we were both so sick. That was Wednesday. Wednesday morning, I came here, made some adjustments with Timon. Um, it was all good, it was very encouraging, and then I went home to have some lunch and sit down and finish this off and start work like practicing it. And then I got a call from a dear friend to say, um, did you know that Nan's been recommended to evacuate? Um, and my family's property is in the hills. And as he's on the phone to me, I get a text from my mum saying, uh, me and Lisa, my sister, are going to my bridge, my brother and his family are going to Malang. Uh, Dad's decided to stay. And it was too late for me to do anything, so I had just to sit helplessly at home and watch the CFS updates. Say that it was at Lobethal, then it's at Woodside, then it's at Inverbrachy, it's at Brakunga, it's at Harrogate Road, it's on Hopepots Road, which is the place that I grew up, my family farm. And I called my brother um, when I noticed that he was there. And the first thing he said was, I think mum and dad's is gone, it's up in flames. I can't get up there, I presume it's on fire. And so I mourned the loss of our family home, thinking it was over. We drove up there finally at eight o'clock when it looked like it was safe to go, and by some miracle, mum and dad's house still stands. By some miracle, all the stock survived, despite everything else around it being scorched, and I just want to say thank you to those who are praying because another K down the road is me and my brother's property. And it came 100 metres onto our property, another 300 metres it would have hit my brother's house. And it's almost as if the fire came so far and God said that'll do. And the wind turned and the fire went back the other way. It was so miraculous. But despite... God being so gracious to us in the midst of that storm is still so hard. This is the place that I grew up. All of my memories are here and now it's all black. And it's hard to imagine in the midst of all that that God has a better plan. God has a better plan. How, it's hard to fathom that. I'd invite the band to come back up now if they would like as we close. And I know that 
I know that 2019 hasn't been a good year for a lot of us. It hasn't gone to plan at all. And Satan wants to whisper in your ear, you're a failure. Your plans failed, so you're, you must be a failure. But I, what I want you to say back to the enemy tonight is, look, my plans may have failed and my expectations may not have been met, but God's plan is better. And the gospel proves that. Say back to him, the gospel's plan is better. Amen. A lot of us are looking back of tw on 2019 with regret, dissatisfaction, and heartache. And what we need to do is we need to literally take those things and place them at the foot of the cross. Some of us have big plans for 2020, which is great and awesome, but we need to take those plans also and with an open hand, place them at the foot of the cross. Plans are good. Plans are good, but don't hold on to them so tightly. Because when we do, we despair when they fail. I think God's calling us tonight to repent of holding on to our plans too tightly. Because we'd rather trust our plans than trust Him. We've been despairing about old plans that have failed. And we're about to start despairing when the plans we're holding too tightly are about to fail. God's calling us to surrender our plans to him, the old and the new ones. He's calling us to surrender our future, to surrender our heart to him, to surrender 2019 and 2020 into his hands. Trust him. He is so gracious and patient and has such a mighty plan for you and your life. Just surrender to him. And if you ever struggle to surrender to him, because maybe your property has been scorched. Maybe you lost your boyfriend or you lost your girlfriend or you lost your job. You didn't get the scores you intended to. You still haven't got a job. Whatever it is, the reason that you struggle to surrender your plans to him, look at the manger. Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. Look at the gospel. His plans are better. Let him have your plans.